0: Today on Yap, we're throwing it back to my interview with the co-founder of the uber popular crowdsourcing platform Kickstarter and the creator of Bentoism, Yancey Strickler. Yancey is also the author of This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World, which outlines Bentoism, his framework that helps people make more informed decisions by gauging the impact of their decisions on both an individual and a societal level. We often get stuck in the routine of making decisions that only benefit our present selves. What do I want right now? And we sometimes forget to think about how these decisions will affect our lives and the lives of others moving forward. Bentoism offers an alternative approach to making decisions that mindfully consider our current self, the people around us, our future selves, and the people we will be surrounded by in the future. Yancey was originally featured on Yap for episode number 81 in September of 2020, and he was one of the first guests who brought the concept of purpose over profits or conscious business to Yap. Soon after my episode with Yancey, many people brought up similar concepts like conscious business and generosity purpose, but none of these guests provided such an actionable way to actually make decisions that promote this type of business philosophy in practice. So in this episode, Yancey and I break down the components of bentoism. And he tells me about some companies that are embodying these qualities. We also discussed the problem with financial maximization and Yancey gives his predictions for how society will evolve over the next 30 years. If you want to peek into the future from one of the most innovative and influential business minds of our time, then Yap Bam, I highly recommend that you keep on listening. Hey, Yancey, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast.
1: What's up? Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. I'm super, super stoked about this interview. So, Yancey, just to introduce you to my listeners, you are the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter. You are the founder of the philosophy of bentoism, and you're the author of This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. And before we dig into Kickstarter and bentoism, which is such an interesting topic, I really want to talk about your career journey and your childhood. So based on my research, you actually didn't really fit in. You got bullied. You were called homophobic slurs in your own words so much that you thought that you may be gay um, and you just didn't even know it. So how did this experience of being an outcast as a child really impact who you are today and some of the moves that you've made in your life?
1: Yeah, let's just let's, let's just start right at the deepest, the deepest, most vulnerable spot, why not? Yeah, it. Um, I think those kind of experiences shape your self-perception whether they're true or not, they help create a narrative about yourself. So for me, that's create a narrative of like not belonging, you know? And even if I'm like being invited to belong, I distrust it, right? Because I just don't Mm -hmm. see that value. These things just echo, you know? They form your anxieties and, and your drive. You know, for me growing up in the country, on a farm, no neighbors, you know, I just read books all the time and that's what I love to do. And that's still what I love to do. And, and so one way of thinking about it is just during the during the times where other people were, yeah, socializing, uh, which of course I still had, but, you know, I would just, I would be reading. And so I just had a real curiosity for the world that always drove me. And that even when I would have these really tough moments in life, like I just sort of was was always called by just uh, an interest in the world, a curiosity in the world. You know, it did it really didn't beat me down in a way that it like you know stopped me from moving. It, yeah. It's more that I was just like, I gotta get out of here. I've gotta, I have to succeed, and yeah. so it played out that way.
0: Well, that's, that's really cool. And I bring it up not to, not to like put you on the spot or make you feel uncomfortable. It's more because I have a lot of listeners that are young and probably are getting bullied. And I want them to understand that like you can come out of that and you can be super successful just like you, Yancey. Like you have, Kickstarter is one of the most impressive companies of the last decade, you know, and, and for you to have been a part of that, and to have had a childhood where you weren't like the most popular, you know, football player in school, you you don't need to be that to to be successful. And actually, most people who are the most popular in school are not the most successful after school, you know? And so I just think that's important for people No, it's
1: so important to recognize.
0: So let's talk about your career journey before Kickstarter. From my understanding, you had a dream of being a writer. So what were some of the things that you did before you actually started Kickstarter?
1: Yeah, I was uh, in college. I studied English and cultural studies, and uh, just did a lot of writing and reading. And while I was in college, I started just randomly writing record reviews, and I, I managed to get a couple album reviews in Pitchfork. And Pitchfork mm-hmm. was just starting then, but like, it was amazing. You know, I was one of the first whatever thirty people to write for Pitchfork, and that that was exciting. And Then I, I moved to New York and and got basically like entry-level editorial-slash-production jobs, first at, like, a radio station, then at, like, a website. And at the start, all these jobs were basically some sort of data entry or, like, using a CMS, you know, take our stuff and put it in here so it goes on the website. But what what I found was there's a lot of opportunity in those places, especially coming in as someone who was comfortable with the Internet and technology, and this is when, like, the world is still shifting, beginning to shift in that way. And I discovered something interesting for me, which is, you know, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I thought of myself as a writer, but like the, the organizational questions, thinking strategically, getting people to like come to consensus around ideas. I, I discovered that I, that those things came very naturally to me and I didn't expect it. I didn't even want it. I actually felt like almost like a sellout or like a class trader for being good at those things, because <laughs> I thought of myself as a creative person, but just being inside young organizations that were changing gave me enough opportunity and enough, you know, enough, enough challenges to, to chew on that it, it let me discover these other capabilities that I had. And yeah. in, in all cases, it came in from like taking the, I mean, my first job was $18,000 a year, taking that job and then just like every day or just showing up just thinking, how can I be useful other than doing the 10 things that I have to do? And yeah, and that, and that was really it.
0: That's really cool. And so, like I mentioned previously, you co-founded Kickstarter, which basically created a whole new economy based on the generosity of people. Kickstarter has placed billions of dollars in the hands of creative people since it launched in 2009, more than 100,000 new ideas, have generated because of it. And it was actually uh, Perry Chen, who is one of your co-founders, who originally had the idea. So take us back to that moment, back in 2009, when Perry first brought up the idea to you. What did you think about that idea? Did you understand it? And were you on board right away?
1: Yeah, um, Perry had first had the idea in 2001, so, or 2001, 2002. So like he'd been sitting on it for a while and he'd wanted to throw a concert and realized that he was going to have to front something like $20,000 to make the show happen and thought, what if instead I could propose the concert to the public? People could put up their credit cards to buy tickets, but no one would be charged unless the show sold out. And so there was this notion of a conditional transaction, it would only happen if people wanted it to. And so that was the idea for Kickstarter. He shared it with me four years later. So 2005, we met in a restaurant where in Brooklyn where he worked and I was a regular. And my first reaction to the idea was actually not liking it. I thought, it reminded me of American Idol. And it, I'm just like, why do we need people voting on stuff? Like, is that is that is that how we want culture to happen? You know, really? And, and we just ended up talking about how, you know, think about the... The niche artist or the person who has the online community that's like so dispersed in the real world, but you know if they could only gather the people on the web, you know mm-hmm. something would be possible. And so you know we started working on it and and found our third co-founder Charles Adler about a year later. And what was interesting was like, you know crowdfunding didn't exist yet, and uh, there had been some experiments, but it wasn't there wasn't any kind of platform. it wasn't a, a normal thing and we were focused on the very beginning on just helping creative projects and artists and creative people. That was just like, that's who we were. That's where we came from. That's what we cared about. And so that meant from the beginning, you know, just like closing ourselves off to a lot of potential opportunity, just like taking a a, a stronger focus than you might think. But, mm-hmm. you know, but in that way, just like authentically representing a need, you know, of like creative ideas not being appreciated and and especially creative people not being appreciated. And I I even think the way that creators are lauded now on the web and Patreon, even YouTube framing itself around creators, like that is not a language that existed before Kickstarter. Even before Kickstarter, it's like there are musicians and filmmakers and, you know, these are all discrete things. And instead, now we think of them as they're all kind of a, a similar creative practice It remains a great tool and and something that just allows self-determination and creative ideas and things that wouldn't otherwise to happen, uh, to happen.
0: Yeah. So, like you said, it wasn't a phrase that people knew about. People didn't know what crowdfunding was when you first launched Kickstarter. That, That phrase didn't exist. You guys kind of were one of the first pioneers in the space. So when you were bringing on investors or even content cre- creators on the platform what kind of pushback did you receive in terms of the idea
1: Yeah it was so painful to explain you know you get you get like lost in the mechanics of and then there's a pledge and they don't get charged there's so many things that we take for granted are really hard to explain at first the first 2 years every kickstarter video is someone trying to explain to their friends here's here is this new thing Honestly um business people would say no one is going to use this cuz like I want to get a cut. Like I should get a I should get a piece of the action. And but we would say but listen, you know, this the whole idea is that projects aren't meant to be good businesses. They're just like interesting or cool or funny or you know, it's all the other things. And so for a more traditionally minded business person, they're just like this what what need does this possibly serve? For creative people, they immediately would see it. Uh, they immediately saw it and said, yeah, you know, I have so many Mm -hmm. projects and I have to go knock on doors and beg to get them made. Like I would, if I could just present my idea and I don't have to get permission from anyone, like that's amazing. But there was a question of, but will people actually support me? You know, because there's, it's still at that point, we're used to an artist fan relationship of, I buy a ticket when your movie comes out, I buy, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just that it's after the fact. And here we're saying, you know, just support this person for being them, support an idea because it's a good idea. And that's, that's requiring a different level of trust. And so, you know, I think everyone had the attitude of like, well, sure, this sounds great, but having that, you know, healthy, grizzled veterans, you know, skepticism of, but we'll see, you know, we'll see if people actually do this kind of thing. But if you look at, you know, Kickstarter, GoFundMe, Patreon, you know, it's, even now only fans, right? I mean, it, like the, yeah. the, the degree to which we are willing and excited to directly support one another is just, you know, it seems so obvious now that connection was not there before about yeah. 10 years ago.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You wanna get them in the right mindset. You wanna cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that. before you even had the idea for it, you were a writer. You weren't really expecting to be an entrepreneur. You didn't go get your MBA. You know, you were an artist and and this idea kind of came about and, and you went with it and you had a really good mission. You wanted artists and creators to have a way to fund their brilliant ideas, right? So did you have like imposter syndrome, uh, considering that you took the CEO role at the company? What were some of the challenges that you had in terms of being a leader and not really having too much Business experience.
1: Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm still waiting to see if imposter syndrome ends. You know, just <laughs> <see>. <laughs> somehow even as you change, you think, "Oh, but I, but am I really this?" Um, yeah, there's a lo- there's a lot of that because um, it wasn't an aspiration. I mean, Perry was the CEO for the first five years, and uh, and I stepped in after that. And mm-hmm. it's not something that I wanted or had. You know, spent my life preparing for and. And that that's a good and a bad thing. You know, it's a good thing because especially if you're a company like Kickstarter, where you're trying to, you know, we're trying to set a different kind of example. We're, you know, we're really trying to uphold a lot of values that that are personal to us. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do things the way everybody else does them because that laziness can just trap you. You know, we saw it happen to to many of our friends. But also, you know, it just means that as everyone else is chasing hyper growth and large valuations and you're not chasing those things that you know other folks get their like trophy moment and you know you don't yours is more subtle and there are days where you that you can feel good about it and you could think you know it doesn't matter and then there are days where you think what if everyone else is right and i'm like the one sucker who didn't <laughs> you know who didn't like realize so, I, you know, for me, it was hard that I just didn't see many role models like I had you know, people on my board I loved. And, but certainly as I looked around the startup universe, I didn't see anyone reflecting this idea of like trying to build a long term institution, trying to align our self-interest with our users and employees. Like, you know, just the things that to me felt like the hardest things to get right, honestly, just seemed like no one else even cared about. So that's hard. That's hard. Yeah. And it's yeah. and and it's even something that like even inside the company there is um you know because we all live in the same world and so employees say might want hey can we raise a lot of money to go chase growth to match what a competitor is doing and so it's not just that like there are these Scrooge McDuck like sitting somewhere it's mm-hmm. we're all we're all a part of this. I'm a part of it too. Right. And so there's a lot that you end up having to balance there. You know, in, in the end, in the end, what I found is that I was ultimately able to just act in a way that is deeply true to who I am. You know, I, I don't yeah. really look at anything I did and see any moment where I think that I was out of alignment with what I believe is important, what I care about. You know, did I always make the right decision? No. Did I, you know, did things always work out? No. But on that deeper level, I think it was always on point to some degree, and um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and again, I I have friends who were founder CEOs, more more successful. Funny, funny phrase to use, the, use in this context, but more successful became very wealthy. All you know, followed the same the traditional path, and I think there you find there's still a lot of regret. There's guilt, you know, do I deserve this? There's, you know, did I do things the right way or not? You know, maybe I took some shortcuts that are possibly creating some challenges now. How do I feel about that? So there's a lot you end up carrying, but yeah. So having, just having the, the confidence to be yourself in a job like that, you know, I I definitely don't feel like I mastered that, but I, I, I I think I held the line well enough.
0: Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that you did. Just to give my listeners some context, Kickstarter is a public benefit corporation, correct? And that's a PBC is what people call it. And I personally never heard of this company structure before researching you. It turns out there are a few other large corporations like Patagonia and Method Products that are also PBCs. But explain to our listeners what that is and how that makes you different from other companies and startups or how how that makes Kickstarter different because I think it will help them understand what you were just talking about a little bit more.
1: Yeah, a a PBC is a for-profit company that... Mm -hmm has taken upon itself and and has a legal classification where it is required to balance the financial interests of shareholders, which is what every company in America is held by over the last 50 years, but you're meant to balance the, the financial interests of shareholders with producing a positive benefit to society. And so most companies have the attitude that you make as much, you just maximize for profit, you create a corporate giving program to apologize later for all the rivers you polluted. Um, and, you know, we hope that works out in the long run. I think we can look around us to see how well that strategy plays out. As a PBC, you're saying that these things must be one-to-one. Like you're you're directly incorporating these things into how you act, how you behave in, in all aspects. And when you become a PBC, you write a charter that says what you're going to be legally held liable to. And so Kickstarters lays out a dozen or so provisions that include things like donating 5% of our after-tax profits to organizations giving arts education and schools and organizations mm-hmm. fighting systemic inequality, or pledging to not use legal but esoteric tax avoidance strategies to avoid paying the company's fair share. But what's important about a PBC structure is that you know, there, there, there are a lot of good companies, um, but those that are operating as a traditional for-profit company, they're just relying on having good people in their leadership positions. You know, they, Mm -hmm. they, they ultimately are still being held to this goal of maximizing a financial gain. And they just happen to have nice people doing it that aren't willing to do all the, the things that you can do as a PBC, the company's legally held, held to this and it can't change. Like, the company you know i'm no longer the ceo of kickstarter the the ceo now is he has to follow these same ideals so the same will be for the next kickstarter ceo and on and on so we ultimately felt like this was a, a structural way to keep us honest uh, a structural way to keep the company aligned with its community of creative people and you know we as founders said from the beginning you know we we didn't want to sell the company we weren't trying to ipo just like can we create a thing that does what it's supposed to do, that doesn't screw it up, that fulfills that purpose. And so I think the PBC is a is a structured way to do that. It's not, it's not perfect. It doesn't solve it, but I, I think it is a a model and, and definitely more people are using it.
0: Yeah. So you just brought up financial maximization. So I think that's a great transition into our next topic, which is what you really focus on now, like speaking about and, and bentoism. So this idea of financial maximization, it, it boils down to meaning that the right choice is whatever option makes the most money. And this concept was first introduced by the famous economist Milton Friedman in 1970. And so we're so used to this, this way of the world where money drives everything. Profit drives everything. Even like GDP is how our country is measured on our success as a country. So tell us about, you know, this economist who put out this op-ed in New York Times and how that really changed the world. What was the world like before that and what happened after that?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, Milton Friedman is a brilliant economist with, you know, many, many great additions to our knowledge of the world. Uh, And it was 50 years ago, actually, to this week that he wrote this New York Times uh, essay that said that the social responsibility of a business is to increase profits. And that at a moment when companies were really held to this notion of the public good and companies were celebrated for being things like GM saying what's good for America is good for GM, that it was an argument that, that all that was wrong and that actually they were overcomplicating things and businesses should just focus on maximizing profits. Now, I think there's some wisdom to, to what he says, but that became a license to basically just absolve, for business to absolve themselves of any responsibility other than their own returns. And so you see this dramatic shift in how America functioned that happened in 1973, where basically worker wages just stopped growing. From 1973 to today, The average American's wage has grown by about 10%. That's 10% since 1973, the same year Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon came out. It's like 50 years, 10% raise. Meanwhile, the cost of everything are crazy higher. Education, Mm -hmm. housing, healthcare, everything else. So people are like getting pinched in this crazy way. There's a study that just came out today from the Rand Corporation, which is, I write about in the book, a very reputable government organization that did a study to say, you know, what if wages kept growing after 1973 the way they had for the previous 30 years, which you think of as the Mm -hmm. golden age of capitalism, the average American salary today would be jumping from something like $70,000 $70,000 to like $110,000. And what they found is that every single income group, like the lowest paid person would be getting $68,000 a year. And the only group, the only group that loses out on income is the 1%. Even the 99th percentile person sees their incomes gain. But yet the way the system worked changed, it fundamentally changed. And it changed to Optimizing for shareholders, and that produced private equity, that produced uh, companies offshoring jobs, that produced the fragility of the American industrial sector today. Mm-hmm. And that produced all these things, they're all justified by this notion of, well, if it maximizes our, our financial interests, then it's good. But we have reached the end of that story. We've reached the end of that story. It has not worked. It has not worked. America is falling apart, our environment is incredibly unstable. We're gonna find it very hard to just be, and we already are thinking about the normal, let's all grow our businesses, whatever 10%, when there is so much instability and where the weather can wipe out billions of dollars of capital investment in a day, you know, overnight. And so we're in a moment where that mindset is shifting, but it, it really ha- took such a strong hold in the world. Maybe, maybe my favorite place is in a, a study of college students That's happened every year since the 1960s that is about their goals in life. And in 1970, the most important life goal for a college freshman was to quote, develop a meaningful philosophy on life. 84% of college students said that was essential. That Mm -hmm. year, uh, the number of people who said being rich was essential was about 28%, 28% of college students in 1970. The most recent year, the study came out in 2017, 82% of college students said being rich was essential. And only 40% said having a meaningful philosophy on life was. And, and this is a rational response to how our world has changed. And so, you know, th- this is something that I think is at the moment of a, of a breakdown, uh, kind of an empire is breaking down at this moment. But I, I really have come to feel that this invisible assumption that the right outcome is the financially maximizing one is, is has just been this sort of invisible litmus test that has been applied to the world continually over the, the recent decades.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about values a bit, because I think values are really important in this whole conversation. Right now, the world and America and with capitalism, we value money and and maximizing money. What are some of the other values that we could have in play that could mean success? Like what other measures of success are there?
1: Yeah, well, I think that you know, mastery is a great one. You know, mastery is the act of just getting better at something. You know, if you, if you follow like the James Clear atomic habits world, you know, that, that is like the true art of growth is actually you yourself getting better. You're not demanding anything more of the, of anyone else. You're just personally improving. There are values like fairness. Uh, there are values like community ship. There are, are values like purpose that we see are incredibly important, but you know, we, we see it like we assume that all those things must take a back seat to providing for your own financial needs, right? I mean, to, mm-hmm. to pursue a job or a career with purpose, to some degree, is seen as indulgent. It's privileged, and and in a mm-hmm. sense, it is because for half the population, that that really is a, a, a hard ask to make, just because the the degree to which opportunity ha- is being not being evenly distributed. But so I think that. I think that those values are very alive. I mean, in that in that survey of college freshmen, I mean, the, the same percentage of college freshmen want to have a family every year. Like that has not really changed. We still value these same things, but the issue is that they're getting more and more squeezed by our need to make financial ends meet, by our need to have healthcare. And then we tie our notion of self-worth and self-esteem to getting those things. And then you get into that dangerous loop where you are making enough, you're making more than enough, but you build a mm-hmm. lifestyle to match it. Nothing feels like enough. And then you become the heavy polluting Uber consumer that is making themselves unhappy and is destroying the earth at the same time. And you look at anyone that has like a VP, SVP level job at like a big company, there's a high chance that their life is something like that, right? And, yeah. and, and this is like these notions of success they, they box us into these, just these corners where we're really causing a lot of damage, even though we don't recognize it.
0: And now a quick break from our sponsors. Young and Profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting. And support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, Yap Fam. Starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course, subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, and she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. So let's get into uh, Bentoism. And from my understanding, it's a tool or a values processor that can help people decide which four different choices they should pick in every different scenario. The choices include now me, now us, future me, and future us. Can you talk to us about this decision-making methodology that you've came up with? Maybe give us a real example of of how you can use it?
1: Sure, yeah. Um, Yeah, so one day while I was, Working on the book, I was sketching in my notebook, and I drew what's called a hockey stick graph. You know, just a simple x y axis chart, and then a line sloping up into the right. And I drew this as a graph of self-interest, what I thought we thought of as self-interest today. And after I drew that graph, I, I realized that the x axis, which represents time, it could extend; it can go from all the way from now to the future, and the y axis, which measured which I thought reflected your self-interest, how, how popular you were how, you know how, how powerful you were becoming, that that also had a dimensionality because as our self-interest grows, so do our responsibilities. So I thought that actually goes from me to us. So I ended up extending these lines and instead of this simple hockey stick graph, I had these four quadrants and I, I labeled each one, now me in the bottom left, what I want and need right now future me and the bottom right, what the older, wiser version of me wants me to do. Like that person becomes real or not every day based on my choices. There's in the top left, now us, my friends, my family, the people I care most about. They're impacted by everything I do. And then in the top right, future us, my kids, or if I have them or, or everybody else's kids, if I don't. And I realized that even though when I'm making decisions, I'm really only thinking about now me for the most part, actually every choice I make leaves a footprint in all these spaces. I'm constantly Mm -hmm. shaping them. So I wrote down next to this, a simple description of what I drawn. And I wrote beyond near-term orientation. This was like a simple graph that helped me see beyond my near-term orientation. And I just suddenly realized that was an acronym for BENTO. And I thought about the Japanese bento box that has four or five compartments in a lid that lets you carry a variety of dishes. So not too much of any one thing, it's all about balance. And the bento also honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called bu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full, that way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So I thought bento, the bentoism, bentoism is the same thing but for my values and my choices. A way for me to not just listen to what now me wants, but to see this, this bigger picture. So just a simple example, is you can imagine, a smoker asking their bento, because it's, it's actually a tool, a UI, a, bento, a smoker asking their bento whether they should quit smoking. So what you would do is you'd ask each of these boxes individually and just see what it has to say. So a smoker asks their now us, which thinks of their family, should I quit smoking? And that bento says, yeah, you should quit. Like, we hate that you smoke. The smoker asks their future us, which thinks that they're children, should I quit smoking? And it says, yeah, what if I smoke because of you? Quit. The smoker asks their future me, should I quit smoking? Future me says, I want there to be a future me, let's quit. And then the smoker asks their now me, and the now me says, hell no, I'm addicted to nicotine, quitting's going to suck. No, we definitely shouldn't quit. And this is where we often get stuck. Right, We listen to this now me voice, we have a harder time seeing these other spaces. They're irrational, they're deferred, the outcomes are deferred, they're harder to to make those kinds of decisions. But this is where we individually get stuck and this is where as a world have gotten stuck, is just optimizing for now me and not doing a good enough job of thinking about the people in our lives and thinking about the long-term impact of our decisions. And so the bento's as simple as you could get, four boxes, and you can build your own values inside of them. And I lead a community called the Bento Society, several hundred people, and we come together every week to build our bentos, to go through creative exercises, to better understand what we want, to better think about the future, what we're working towards, to feel connected with others. And and the goal of all this work is to redefine what the world sees as valuable and in our self-interest in 30 years. By 2050, this can happen. By 2050, the same way that we view short-term individualism, that every decision's about now me, that we just take that as a given. In 30 years, this notion, this bentoist view that now in the future, me as an individual and me as a and us as a group, those are all things that I must balance, that that way of thinking can become just as assumed, just as deeply ingrained as society, and that that's what begins to unlock what are the next evolutions. That is what allows us to deal with climate change. That is what allows us to better create social value with one another, to increase the trust with each other. It's this kind of thinking that I think unlocks all of our best outcomes.
0: Yeah. So 30 years from now is really actually not a lot of time at all. So why do you think that we have a chance to do this within 30 years? Like, oh.
1: There's a lot of, in my research for the book, I found a lot of history, meaningful ideas going from really nothing to just so deeply ingrained in 30 years. And, and I think that there are those, those generational shifts that happen. Some 30 year changes are things like exercise. Believe it or not, before the 1950s, like exercise wasn't a thing that people did. Like exercise had to be invented. Uh, Hip hop goes <laughs> from like not existing to dominating the charts in 30 years. Gay marriage goes from like unthinkable to normal within 30 years there are these incremental changes this this exponential growth that happens in that kind of timeline and i think that what why this happens with us is that really for anyone under the age of 40 you are growing up already with a networked notion of the world like the internet is built into our mind the way that we're connected to each other is is, is like deeply part of us yes we feel lonely yes but like but we're so much more connected than other generations too. And and ultimately the challenges that we face are forcing us to think about the future, right? COVID is forcing us to think about the future, but that we can do those things blindly. We can do those things feeling lost. We can do those things feeling defensive, or we could do those things in a way that we have a structured way of thinking where we have a shared map that we're using. And maybe we can start to create almost like genres of value. Like, what does it mean to create future us value? What what kinds of actions do that? What kinds of actions harm that? And so as I look at the 30-year process of this change, I think it starts with individuals just seeing their own lives differently. And this has now happened for thousands of people at this point. And the Bento Society is like a weekly practice of that. The second step is people sharing this perspective in their workplaces and their homes, like the other places where we're leaders, just like, hey, have we thought about kind of the future us consequences of this? And just beginning to share this perspective. It's not hard to get a hold of. And it it instantly clicks for people, I find. And finally, the third and and kind of the the slowest moving flywheel, but the biggest is how our norms get redefined by these kinds of changes. And this is where I think you're getting to that 30-year perspective of – Can we define new sorts of values and metrics that businesses use to guide behavior? Can we say normalize uh, long term and short term thinking through like our digital products somehow? Like, how what are ways that these things can be just practically a part of our life? And that takes longer time. And so, the Bento Society, we're thinking about all three levels of that. And those longer term projects, the goal is to be funding things, to be just supporting, you know, whether it's Businesses, one off projects, art that are fulfilling this notion of growing non financial values and, and balancing our self interest. And I think just stepping up to where we are in the world, like just stepping up as humans, like do, doing our ancestors a solid and not blowing this. You know, this yeah. is like where we are. This is like the biggest choke job, the biggest choke job. The fact that we are struggling so much from where we are I mean we're we're just giving this away and and so i I, I think that we have to get real and, and to me it's at this level of, uh, of structural change that isn't huge but it's just how we see ourselves and our responsibility and, and that is more powerful than any technology or anything else and, and yeah. I and I have a lot of faith in that
0: yeah when I was reading your book I was like Mind blown. I I really helped open up my perspective to all of this, especially when you were, you were writing about how, you know, the population is, is exploding right now. And think about how much garbage we have and carbon pollution and all of that. And, and just thinking about how many more people are going to be around and even with COVID and who knows what that's going to be like with an increased population and it's just scary and and we do need to kind of change what we value and how we work as a society for sure.
1: Yeah, we're I think we're we're going over a precipice right now. And I think that a certain regime is ending. And I think the the falls of regimes are messy and scary and painful and are often violent and deadly and there is much to be fearful of. But you know, my feeling is that 15 years from now, 10 years from now, I, I think we're gonna find ourselves in just a dramatically better position, asterisk climate change, asterisk climate change in a major way, like who knows what that is. But but I have, I'm an optimist about human beings. I, I think we always do the best we can with what we know. And part of my drive in, in thinking about bentoism and this model was just, you know, what new knowledge could we possess that would really allow us to, to step into our responsibility to see it? because I no one wants to leave a worse world. Like no, no one intentionally desires these things, but we've become so careless and we've become so trapped in our narratives, but the, wor- the world is going to take them away from us, whether people are ready or not.
0: Yeah. So my last question uh, before we close out is really on Tesla. So I think they're a great example of how you can prioritize future us instead of me now. Could you give us that example?
1: Yeah. Well, just Tesla. I mean, not only that it's an electric car company, but you know even tesla's patents that they developed several years ago i think in 2014 tesla and elon musk decided to make all their patents available to anyone and said our goal is not to be the biggest electric car company in the world it's our goal is for electric cars to be what everyone drives in the world and we think that this is what makes this happen you know that that's a the perfect kind of decision that we need you know because we are we, we tell ourselves a story that we are competing, but we there is one planet here and, and and all of our competitions are so puny and so small compared to what's really at stake and so I think gestures like that show the truth of our situation and and, and I think there are more of those coming
0: very cool and the last question I ask all my guests is uh what is your secret to profiting in life
1: uh, I think it's really knowing yourself and acting in a way that's in integrity and coherent with who you most deeply are. When you're doing that, it's hard to go wrong.
0: And where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do?
1: Yeah, you can find me online at whystrickler.com. You can find out more about bentoism at bentoism.org. And if you want to join the weekly practice we do, that's just bit.ly slash weekly bento. We'd love to have you there. Awesome.
0: Cool. Thank you so much, Yancey. I loved this conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, thanks. You too.
0: Yeah, fam, I have to say I do admire Yancey's outlook on the future because I think it's both realistic and optimistic. Clearly, there are aspects of our society that are not working for everyone. We live in a profit-driven economy that prioritizes financial maximization and it endangers the livelihood of those who work to support it. Our cost of living is becoming way too high to sustain and that's only continued to worsen since this interview aired back in 2020. The latest data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that energy prices are up 41.6% and gasoline alone is up nearly 59.9% over the last year. Yet I do believe there is hope for our future young and profiters. When a system becomes unsustainable, it eventually crumbles and it will be rebuilt into something much, much stronger. Fingers crossed at least. Part of the problem is that our current economic system uses profits to measure success primarily. But there are so many other variables that can give a better assessment of a business's potential for growth. For example, evaluating customer loyalty. This is something we just talked about earlier this week in episode number 186, Love Your Customers, with Fred Reichheld, who is the creator of the NPS survey. Things like customer loyalty can give you a hint of how a business will perform in the future, not necessarily just their. Profits, And let's face it, in today's day and age, short-term individualism and financial thinking are hidden defaults that are so powerful that we hardly even notice them. It's just a way of life right now. But Yancey and the Bento Society is on a mission to make a multidimensional lens for self-interest and values the default point of view by 2050, just one generation from now, they hope to make this big societal shift. And I believe it. I've been seeing this theme of conscious business bubbling up on the podcast for almost two years now. So many powerful and successful people from Ryan Blair to Derek Kinney to John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods, they're arguing for conscious business, which is along the same lines of bentoism. And Yancey really gives us a strong framework to put it all into practice. I actually just put out a Yap Snacks on conscious business just a week or two ago. And this really rounds out that conversation with an actionable way to actually make decisions that will contribute to a more conscious way of doing business. And so bentoism, it's the theory that self-interest is multidimensional. That's the key right there. It's that self-interest goes beyond just you in the now. Today, we see self-interest in terms of short-term individualism. It's what I want right now. While this perspective is in our self-interest, it really doesn't capture the whole picture. Bentoism a way to remember Bentoism and what it means. It's an acronym for BEYOND, B-E, near-term orientation, BENTO, BEYOND, near-term orientation. It's a wider lens for what's valuable and in our own self interests. This includes what I want as an individual right now, now me. It also makes space for the considerations of our future selves, future me, the people we rely on and who rely on us, now us, and the next generation, future us, all of these spaces impact us and are impacted by us and the decisions and actions that we make and take. They are all in our self-interest. Bento is a simple and useful tool for making decisions and setting strategies that look beyond a short-term individualistic view. And like Yancey said, the next 10 to 15 years are going to be pivotal to how we function as a society. And it's up to us young and profiter's out there, the innovative community of learners who want to make a difference to intentionally make decisions that will serve us now and in the future. Bentoism for a better world, yap fam. Thanks so much, Yap fam, for tuning in to this episode of Yap Classic featuring Yancey Strickler. Be sure to listen to the full episode, number 81, Bentoism for a Better World. And check out Yancey's website and the online Bentoism Hub, both of which we've linked in the show notes. And let me know what you thought about this episode. My favorite thing is to get your reviews. Apple Podcast has been on fire lately. We've been getting tons of reviews. Apple Podcast reviews mean the most. I love them so much. In fact, Why don't I go read a couple off right now? I mean, I check it out all the time. I literally have it bookmarked here. I can just pull it up on the fly. It was not planned or in my notes. But I'll just pull it up because I love your reviews. I, I read them all the time. It makes me feel really good. It boosts my confidence all the time. And it makes me feel like I'm providing meaningful, valuable work. Because for me, it's not just about making money. It's not just about having a platform. It's about serving all of my listeners. Right. All right. So let's give a couple shout outs here from some recent Apple podcast reviewers. Let's start with Jerry P 1200 and he or she says valuable insights. Hala and her guests always deliver more value than promised. The guests Hala hosts on her show are experts in their fields and provide insights and suggestions that make listening worth your time. If you're looking for actionable advice and information, then Hala's podcast is the podcast to which you need to subscribe. Oh, thank you so much, Jerry, for that awesome review. Now, let's see. This one is from CZGlass72 from Apple Podcasts. By the way, some of these usernames are really silly. So it's always good to put your name if you're going to drop me a review so I can shout you out properly. So CZGlass72 says, morning walks with Hala. Hala's gifted in interviewing and her authenticity and curiosity are exciting. I'm not young, but I'm most definitely profiting from her guests. Thank you so much, CZ Glass. We actually have listeners of all ages. I think some of my biggest fans of this podcast are between the ages of 40 and 60. And so Young and Profiting just means Young and Profiting at heart. I think one day we'll probably rebrand the podcast to Yap Podcast and no longer be Young and Profiting because I think a lot of people feel alienated from the name. If you do, let me know on Instagram or linkedin or wherever you want to reach me you can even drop it in a five-star review in terms of your feedback if you want us to change the name to yap and you no longer want it to be young and profiting because you feel like it's alienating let me know okay one more this one is from new and i think that's a woman she says love love hollis energy and confidence for a little while, it was hard for me to figure out if I was part of the target audience because I don't consider myself to be super young anymore. But once I started listening, I realized the show is really for all ages. Love the show on Holla's energy, insightful questions, and of course, the value-packed nature of the episodes. Thank you so much, Nushin. And again, another young profiter who might not actually be so young. You don't need to be Young biologically to listen to this podcast, you just need to be young at heart. So, there you have it, Yap Bam. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you enjoyed the shout outs at the end here. Again, if you want to thank me and the Yap team, drop us a five star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find me on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter at Yap with Hala. You can also find us on YouTube if you like to watch these sort of things. Go look at our YouTube. We're popping right now. Our YouTube is on fire. We're really putting a lot into our videos and my studio looks great. If you haven't seen it, my studio is awesome. My dream studio. And I'd love to hear from you guys. Big thanks to my YAP team. Love you all so much. Couldn't do this without you. Thank you for all your support. You guys are amazing. This is your host, Halataha, signing off.